I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Bodily autonomy has always been a political flashpoint, but in recent years, the country's become even more fiercely divided over several issues. Today, dozens of demonstrators gathered in Corpus Christi in support of bodily autonomy. Many here calling for their independence from laws that restrict people from making their own choices about their pregnancies. We've also seen a wave of anti-transgender legislation being passed in Republican-led states. The Florida law that would codify gender-affirming care as child abuse. The right to govern one's own body without external influence and make decisions for one's physical self has brought into question ideas around freedom and identity. While we've heard a lot about issues like abortion and gender-affirming care, one thing that hasn't made headlines as much is assisted death. Assisted death has also been called other things in the past. People have used the terms physician-assisted suicide or death with dignity. In 10 U.S. states, as well as the District of Columbia, terminally ill people can plan their own deaths with a physician's prescription of lethal medication. In other states like Florida, you could be charged with a felony for assisting someone with their death. Californians have had the legal right to assisted death since 2016. The law in place provides an option for terminally ill people to choose when and how to die, but it comes with some complex restrictions. Chronicle columnist Nula Bashari recently learned about assisted death on a very personal level. She helped her partner's mom, Linda, die. Today on Fifth Emission, Nula will share what it was like to witness what she calls the perfect death and what she learned from the experience. She'll also explain why assisted death should be talked about much more openly in California. Nula, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I went to high school in the Bay Area, and one of my freshman year class assignments was to debate in support of doctor-assisted suicide. That was more than two decades ago. And the topic is still kind of elusive in California, isn't it? Even though the state made it legal in 2016. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think people don't really talk about it. I actually did not know that it was legal in the state until a few months ago. I knew it was in Oregon because I remember that being, you know, a big thing in the news. That's the first state where it was legalized. But I think a lot of people aren't even aware that this is possible in California. Well, tell me more about this law, California's End of Life Option Act. What does the act include since many people may not know? So this act allows an adult, so someone who's over 18, who's been diagnosed with a terminal disease and who a doctor has deemed to have less than six months to live, they can receive a little cocktail of prescription drugs that they can take home and then use to end their life. And how have California residents utilized the law since it's become legal? So numbers are a lot lower than I thought, actually. As part of the act, the state is required to release a report with data every single year. And I'm still waiting on last year's report. But looking at the 2021 one, there were only 448 individuals in the state who chose to end their life this way that year. And then when you look at the demographics, they're exactly what you would expect in a way. Most of the people, about 90 percent, were over the age of 60 the majority had terminal cancer diagnoses, and then a small percentage had Lou Gehrig's disease or Parkinson's. Often, I think a physician will inform them of it, you know, saying this is an option out if you are in pain, if you want to end your life. I think that hospice workers are trained to talk to people about that option, though there's a really fine line. They can't push it on anyone. You know, they can mostly just inform people that, that it's a possibility. 
And there are really specific guidelines and rules in order to end your life this way. What are they? So right now, people in California have to verbally request the drug. They have to do it twice with at least 48 hours between each request. They have to be of sound mind. So, for example, they can't have dementia to make the request. And they have to be able to ingest the medication on their own. And it isn't a liquid. So, in other words, they have to be able to swallow. So this couldn't be someone with a power of attorney to make a decision for a parent or a partner or anything like that. No, no. It has to be the individual themselves. Now, Nula, I know this topic is a really personal one for you. You recently wrote in your latest column how your partner's mother, Linda, chose to end her life this way. Before we get into that, tell me a little bit about Linda. Yeah, Linda was an incredibly strong, independent woman. She was a hippie when she was younger. She was a groupie to famous bands. She traveled and lived in all these different places. She was just an amazing hub of stories. She would tell you things over dinner that just kind of made your brain explode. And then after all these adventures, she decided to become a single mom, which was a role that she really, really excelled at. I'm biased because I'm in love with her son, but I think she was an incredible mother, a very accepting mother. And she was also a really good friend. She had a really strong community of friends. She was a Zen Buddhist and helped create the Sacramento Dharma Center. Wow. So a very full, full life. Yes. You, Nula, were able to witness Linda's death, something you described as being one of the most profound moments in your life. Tell me, how did she go about making this end-of-life decision? By the way you described her, she seems like someone who would be really in control of her own destiny, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. I think she wanted that control through her final day. So as soon as she figured out that her chemotherapy wasn't working, she'd had a remission of colon cancer and the treatment was just not really having an effect. And so she decided to end treatment and move towards ending her life as well. And she did want to do it on her own terms. It was who she was, you know, wanting to be in charge of her own life. And I never noticed her waver. You know, she may have had those moments, but I I never witnessed it. She seemed really secure in her decision from the moment that she informed us all of it. What was the reaction to that decision by loved ones? I think it's, it's really difficult to know that someone is dying and then to have a date. The date was a really big sticking point, at least for me. You can kind of say, yeah, someone is dying, and it's this ethereal kind of process. But when you say someone is going to die on April 2nd, and that means they have four days to live or three days to live, it becomes really, really surreal to realize that April 3rd is going to come around and they're not going to be here anymore. And so I think for a lot of people, there was a kind of preemptive grieving. You know, the grieving started earlier before she died in a way that was beautiful because they could express a lot of feelings to her in her final days, but was also kind of excruciating to know that this might be the last conversation that you have with someone you love. So I want to discuss again California's guidelines for assisted suicide. One detail in particular, which you mentioned, that terminally ill adults must be physically able to ingest the drug on their own. And I understand that was a source of stress for Linda as it was for other people you heard from in response to this column that you wrote. Tell me how that particular rule kind of highlights the complication of the act. Having to have sound mind and the ability to swallow might seem like really, you know, normal expectations for such a thing if you are not in proximity to someone who is really rapidly declining. But 
it can be really stressful. You know, Linda had hospice nurses visiting regularly. And if for some reason they deemed that she wasn't able to swallow on her own or wasn't able to make this decision, then the option could have been taken away from her. You know, she also could have fallen and ended up in the hospital. There were a lot of factors at play that we were all a little bit nervous about as we were heading towards this moment. Mm -hmm. This was something, the swallowing thing was something that came up a lot in emails that I got from readers after my piece ran. And I was a little surprised by that. One person named Mark wrote me just the loveliest, longest email about helping his father die. And his father, unfortunately, could not pursue this option. He did not have the ability to swallow. He did not have doctor's permission to pursue this path. And Mark was talking about how painful it was for him to see that option be taken away from his dad. And he really highlighted in a really beautiful way how the laws need to change to encompass more people. There was a woman named Shirley who told me about her brother who was terminally ill and chose to end his life this way. And he had a really extensive surgery to remove a salivary gland tumor that was growing back really, really quickly. And so he was about to lose his ability to swallow. And she says, you know, another 24 hours, and I think he would not have been able to do it. Mm -hmm. And so these guidelines may not seem super important or inhibitive, but in the moment, they can be really, really tough. It's a law that's supposed to honor bodily autonomy, but only in certain ways, which is really kind of limiting for people who want to take control of the way they end their life. Yeah, I think so. You know, when we talk about bodily autonomy in this political climate, it is often centering around abortion and around gender affirming care. And those are so important. But this experience really taught me about how vital it is to have autonomy over how you die, that we have this option to have a really perfect death. And that should be available to everybody who needs it. How did Linda, the mother of Nula's partner, prepare for her own death? And what was it like for Nula to witness her last breath? She'll share after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Nula Bashari, before the break, you talked about the specific guidelines of California's End of Life Option Act, which includes this rule that terminally ill people have to be able to take the lethal medicine on their own. And that's what caused Linda, your partner's mother, to move her death date a week earlier in order to ensure that it could happen. What went into that decision? I'd imagine it'd be surreal to decide to end your life earlier just so that you could do it in a dignified way. That decision was tougher for her community than it was for her. I think she was really ready to go and she was, you know, holding on to have extra time with people for them. But it didn't seem like a huge decision for her to move it up. She was really ready to go. She wasn't in pain, luckily, thanks to medication, but she was worried that she would be in pain and she could feel herself declining. And so, you know, being the tough, independent woman that she was, she wanted to go out and be really present for that experience. So what was she like as she was preparing to die? And how does that kind of underscore who Linda was to her loved ones? Well, she had a long list of things to do. 
she did a lot of delegating, you know, some kind of bossy instructions. This is who we need to call. This is what we need to do. I mean, she really took care of everything. She cleaned out her closets. She canceled her credit card. She was just across the board so prepared for death and tried to make it as easy as possible for everyone around her. But once everything was mostly done, things kind of moved into a really ethereal space. Like the two days before she died were very quiet. I would often walk into the room and see her just kind of lost in thought looking out the window. I think there was a lot of contemplation around death and what it means and a lot of kind of conversations within herself about how it feels to make this decision Mm -hmm. and not to question it necessarily, but just to participate in it. In your column, you describe Linda's last days, Nula. You wrote about it very beautifully. She took naps with vivid dreams. She was visited by a stream of friends. People told stories. Walk me through what you witnessed and also how you felt. You know, Linda and I didn't know each other for very long. We knew each other for about two years when when she died. But she had this really rich community of people that she'd known for decades. And it's a really fascinating experience to get to know someone through their friends in their final days. And so on her final morning, a ton of her friends came over and filled her living room and we all went around in a circle and kind of thanked her for her friendship and talked to her about the things that she had given us and shared memories. And it was so painful (laughs) and so beautiful at the same time to have that opportunity to say goodbye. And then, you know, after we went around the circle, she kind of looked up at her son and was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> you know, that, that was it. And that's when it kind of hit me that this was all going to happen. And so we moved her into her bedroom. There were just four of us in there with her. And she took the medication and, and slipped into a coma pretty quickly. And I think what we weren't expecting was how long it was going to take her to die. You know, we thought it was going to be minutes and it ended up taking 11 hours. And, you know, as someone who was a little bit removed from the intensity of the grief, I felt worried. <laughs> you know, I would leave the room and, and call my friends who are palliative care doctors or had witnessed this before and be like, is this normal? What do I look out for? You know, trying to kind of almost get control of the situation until I realized that this is just an incredibly human experience to hold vigil at the bedside of someone who's dying. And so I think once we all moved into that space, it was really beautiful. Time really did cease to exist. Like the light just moved across the room and we sat with her and it was exquisite. Did it feel almost odd to be a part of such a sacred space in someone's life, to be an active member in someone's sacred space like that? It did. I mean, honestly, it felt like an enormous honor. I think it's a really beautiful thing to be invited into the room of someone who is dying One of the reasons I was there was to support my partner as he lost his only parent. And so that was kind of my primary role in that space. But it's really beautiful to witness death, especially a really perfect death. You expressed that you wished you had more time with Linda in your piece, that she had been in your life only for a short while, like you mentioned. But witnessing her choose to end her life helped you learn so much about her. What were the most important lessons? She was a very non-judgmental person, and she was very kind, and friendships were incredibly important to her. And I think that's something that I don't always 
think is supported in society. You know, especially as we get older, I think a lot of people lose friendships as they get older. And for me, friendships are one of the most important, if not the most important relationships in my life. And so to have that be reaffirmed by her and to see how deeply she supported she was, that she had, you know, a dozen people in her living room who she was really close to the day she died really reminded me about the value of that. So, Nuli, you also mentioned in your piece that this law in the state is set to expire in 2031, and there are a lot of legal hurdles that it faces. What kind of challenges are there? Well, it seems like, you know, every year there's always some legal battle or another over this. There's a really interesting one happening right now that I want to learn more about that is a suit by a disability rights advocate saying that doctors are suggesting end-of-life options instead of offering care that it's a form of discrimination. And I think that's really interesting. You know, we need to ensure that that isn't happening while, in my opinion, also preserving the right for people to to choose this path. A lot of people, Nula, have emailed you their reactions to your column. And clearly a lot of people want to talk about this, which is so great that we're talking now and that you wrote your piece. What was some of the other reader feedback that you received? There were a lot of people who just wanted to share their stories. I kind of had an inkling that this would happen. You know, I knew that if I felt lonely in this process, that probably other people felt lonely in this process. And so I had a lot of people just emailing me to thank me for writing it and to tell me their experiences of helping someone die. Some were really beautiful. There was a hospice physician who helped his wife die when she was diagnosed with a terminal disease. And hearing from him about, you know, taking the oath to protect life and then also to be a really important part in ending his wife's life was really, really beautiful. So, you know, a lot of those stories as they were coming in, I had to be really careful about when I would open my emails because there's just a lot of <laughs> a lot of crying. Other people pointed out ways in which the laws had failed their loved ones, like Mark, whose dad wasn't able to use this option. And I think one of the things that I really love about being an opinion writer at The Chronicle is that I can share something really personal like this. And then through the emails that come back to me, I, I can identify other ways into this story. And so I feel more aware now of the ways in which this law works for people and the ways in which it doesn't. And I'm definitely going to continue writing about it. Why do you think that assisted suicide hasn't become this sort of political flashpoint in the ways that abortion and gender-affirming care have, as you mentioned earlier, which are these hot topics when it comes to bodily autonomy. What do you think that says about the way that Americans deal or think about death? I think that's a, a really good question, and I don't have a clear answer. I think maybe people don't talk about it because it's hard and grief is a rough thing to navigate. Maybe there's some stigma. It was hard to figure out how to talk about helping my partner's mom die without you know, people making all sorts of assumptions. And so it's not really in our lexicon. We don't know how to talk about it. But also, yeah, we're not very good at death. I mean, as a, as a culture, we're not very good at talking about it. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to think about our loved ones dying and what that should look like or our paths out of life. And yet it really is inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us. And I think we all really deserve a death as perfect as Linda's. I loved that you shared Linda's life in your piece, not just the way she chose to end her life. And I know that her community, including you, is grieving right now. Do you think that this way of ending your life changes the way you think about grief? 
I think that grief is is really messy and it's really individual and it can be really complicated, you know, based off of your relationship with a person. But I I can imagine that there is a comfort in watching someone go on their own terms versus in a hospital bed kind of incapacitated or through something more violent and sudden. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that this option can offer some comfort to people that others may not. Yeah. And not leaving things unsaid. Yes. That's the beauty, right? As as difficult as it was to sit in a room with people who are all saying their final words to someone they really, really love, I mean, what a privilege. What a, what a beautiful thing to have that option for everyone involved. Yeah. Nula, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Thank you for having me. Nula Bashari is a columnist at The Chronicle. Find her piece, I Helped My Partner's Mom Die and Witnessed the Perfect Death. It's online at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. Thanks to Gary Baca for editing this episode, Laura Wenis for the production help, and thanks to you for listening.